go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. Thank you for life. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the rock upon whom we can build our lives, the foundation for our lives, not only here, but for all of eternity. Thank you that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has the keys of hell and death. And now, Father, I would just ask that you would help me to speak the words you would have me to say, this is a difficult lesson, and you know I'm nervous, Lord, and I'm counting on you, I'm depending on you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Pray that you would give my mind clarity and my tongue. Loosen it, Lord, so that I might speak quickly and get through this long and difficult lesson and give you the glory you alone deserve. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. After the Lord healed the blind man outside the city of Bethsaida, which we noted was a unique miracle because it was the only one the Lord ever performed gradually in two stages. Well, after he performed that miracle, he and his men departed. He didn't stay around too long in any one spot, did he? He departed from the area of Galilee to go to the province of Iturea. Matthew 16, if you look at verse 13, tells us, I'll read it in a minute, that he came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the province of Iturea. Now, whenever it says coast, it means the border. It wasn't on any water coast, but the border of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a city located about 25 miles northeast of the area of Galilee. Again, I know you have Bibles and uh, maps in the back of your Bible, so you want to look back there and find Caesarea Philippi so you know how far he walked all the time with his men. It's amazing all the traveling he's done. He was still within the boundary of the promised land, but again he went into an area primarily populated by Gentile people. This region of Iturea was given to Herod the Great, who was Herod Antipas's father. Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. But it was given to his father by Caesar Augustus. The city of Caesarea Philippi was previously called Paneus. It was named after the Greek mythological god Pan. How many of you can picture what Pan looked like? He was half man. The upper half of him was man, and the lower half was what? goat right and he played a flute that was the mythological god pan he was their god of nature and uh, there that's where the city originally got his name Paneus was from pan they said that he was born in a nearby cave somewhere according to greek mythology of course there's no truth in that herod the great built a temple a gleaming white beautiful marble temple in the city of Paneus in order to honor Caesar Augustus. When Herod the Great died, this area was given to his son Philip. Remember Philip? It was his wife Herodias that Herod Antipas stole. Herod Antipas was Philip's brother, and he took Philip's wife. All right, but this area of Iturea had been given to Philip, who ruled as a tetrarch at the time of Christ, and he renamed the city from Paneus to uh, Caesarea Philippi. He named it Caesarea, which means town of Caesar, for, to, in order to honor Caesar. But why do you think he threw in the Philippi? 
<laughs> to honor himself. So it was called Caesarea Philippi. Also, he added the Philippi in order to distinguish it from another city by that same name, which is located to the northwest of Jerusalem, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I have been to that Caesarea, but I have never been to Caesarea Philippi, which was really on the northmost part of the Promised Land. If you go any further, you get up into um, um, gent totally Gentile. The, the area of Damascus, for example, is totally Gentile. But this is still where, uh, this is still within the Promised Land. Some, now this city was known for, it had 14 different shrines and temples located there. So it was known for not only Judaism, which was very small, because there was just few Jews living there, but lots of pagan worship. They, they not only continued to worship the uh, god Pan, but they also worshipped Baal. At one time, this had been the center of Baal worship. It was very close to the city of Dan, you know, the, the tribe, the Israeli tribe of Dan. They named the city Dan. It was a big time for uh, Baal, a big place for Baal worship, and also they worshipped Caesar. So it was at this location, which was really a, a, a crossroad of heathenism and Judaism, that Jesus asked his men the critical question every man, woman, boy, and girl must eventually answer. He asked this question, who do you say that I am? And that's what we're going to look at in the first part of this lesson, which is called the choice. No more important choice exists for mankind than this choice. And then, for the very first time, we're going to look at the Lord's mention of the church. That will be in part two. It was, it was probably within sight of Caesar's white gleaming marble temple that Jesus announced his surprise to his men. He was not yet going to establish his kingdom, his earthly kingdom, but he was going to build his church. So we'll be looking at the choice, first of all, and then the church. Let's begin by looking at the choice, and for this we will look at verses 13 to 17 of Matthew 16. Matthew 16, I told you last week, is a very critical chapter in the Bible. I say, seem to say that about all of them, don't I? <laughs> but this is. All right, it starts in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts or the borders of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Okay, now over in Luke, the parallel account, we, you don't need to turn there, but from Luke we learn that directly before the Lord asked his men these questions, he spent time alone in prayer. Now we know that throughout his earthly life, the Lord spent a lot of time in prayer, didn't he? But when it is recorded for us in the scripture that he spent time in prayer, we know that always something important was going to follow that time in prayer, Right? He prayed before he did something important, like he prayed before the time of his baptism. He prayed in preparation for his 
first great Galilean preaching tour. He prayed before he appointed the 12 men who would become his 12 apostles. We know later in our Life of Christ study that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his arrest and crucifixion. So why do you think the Holy Spirit bothered to tell us through Luke that Jesus prayed somewhere near the city of Caesarea Philippi? Well, probably because he was about to give his men a very important examination. Remember some of you when you were in school? You would have midterms and then you would have final exams. This was sort of like a final exam for these guys. And he was praying that they would pass with an A plus, with flying colors. You know, there's only about six months, now somewhere less than six months left for the, the uh, Lord to spend with his men before he was going to be nailed to that old wooden cross. So time was getting very sh uh, short for him to train them. And remember now, he has purposely withdrawn from the crowds in order to spend more time alone with these 12 men so that he could further open their, their ears of understanding like he did with that deaf man and open their eyes to uh, his words, the truth of his words, the you know, to have spiritual understanding like he did with that blind man we looked at last week. They had been fluctuating between times of strong faith, such as right after the storm when he walked on water and they showed great faith, didn't they? And they said of a truth, thou art the son of God for the first time, called him the son of God. And so they've been fluctuating between times of strong faith and times of little faith, like we saw in our lesson last week when they were concerned over only having one loaf of bread in the boat. You know, what are we going to do? We've only got one loaf. After he had just multiplied loaves by the hundreds, thousands. They had experienced a lot of confusion, too, about what exactly he had come to do. They believed he was the Messiah, but they still believed, they were baffled about the fact that he... Um, it didn't come to be a political Messiah. They were baffled over the fact that he did not accept the crown of Israel when it was offered to him and overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom. It must have been upsetting to them to hear the religious leadership of their land talk so disrespectfully to him and scornfully and try to always uh, trip him up and, and, and um, discredit him before the public. And it must have been disheartening for them to see all the other one-time disciples turn and walk no more with him. It also must have been rather disheartening. Don't you know that when the religious rulers were asking him to perform a sign in the sky, what do you think the disciples were saying? Come on, Jesus, do it. Do it. Show them who you are. We know you can walk on water. We, can know, we know we saw that. We know you could do it. Do it. Go ahead. Don't you know that this is why he had to put them on the boat and get them out of there? I thought it was interesting that twice he's had to get them away from influences, right? The first time he had to get them on the boat and send them away from the uh, crowd that wanted to give him a crowd. The second time he had to get them on a boat and get them away from the ones who wanted him to perform a sign in the sky. You know what that tells us? We need sometimes to just get our children, just grab them by the, the hair and get them away <laughs> from, from the peer pressure, don't we? doesn't matter if they, if they want to go with us, just do it. Like Jesus, he just put them on the boat and made them get out of there. Hightail it out of there. Don't let your young people be influenced by, by the wrong things. 
So a lot of things must have disheartened them, and so they were fluctuating. But on the other hand, they had come to faith in Christ, and he had indeed opened, you know, that first stage of opening their eyes, he had opened their eyes to the light of his person. They knew that he alone had the words of eternal life. They said, to whom else would we go? They knew he had divine power to raise the dead. They knew he had power to change water into wine, to call fish into nets. They knew he had the power to give limbs to maimed people, people who had no limbs. Now, that's pretty impressive. He, he, they knew he could quiet the winds and the waves with just the power of his word, and he could demand demons into pigs, and he could multiply a few loaves of bread to feed massive crowds of people. They had seen all these things. They'd been with him now for over two years. So it was final exam time. It was examination time. I don't know about you, but when it was time for my final exams, I sure wish I had Jesus on a mountaintop somewhere praying for me <laughs> to pass. So right before Jesus asked his men the great exam question, he prayed to the Father, and I can't help but imagine that he prayed for God's grace and God's spirit to enable them to answer correctly. Like Peter, you remember when he said, Peter, you know, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for your faith. Aren't you glad that Jesus is up there praying for us, that will withstand? So he's praying for them to pass because the whole future of his church depended upon these 12 men. Actually, really just 11 of them, right? And one who would come later, Paul. He was counting on, on these men to get the gospel message to the whole world. He had poured everything he had into them, and he did not have another plan. This was it. They were it. So this examination consisted of really one question, but the Lord posed it in two ways. First of all, he asked his men, in effect, who do others say that I am? And then the all-important question, who do you say that I am? This is the single most critical question of, of human life, is it not? Because a person's answer to this question, who do you say, that Jesus Christ is. Their eternal destiny rests on their answer. It is the most demanding question ever asked. It does not get any more serious than this. Now, of course you know that Jesus did not ask this question in order to elicit uh, information from his men. The first question I'm talking about when he said, whom do men say that I am? <clears throat> he didn't ask that question because he was not aware of what people were saying about him. Instead, he asked because he wanted his disciples to think carefully about popular opinion and then determine once and for all whether they were going to go along with, uh, with what others thought or with their own personal opinion. Now, the disciples had had plenty of opportunity to mingle with crowds, had they not? Plenty of opportunities. I mean, they were, they were the distributors of a crowd of some 15,000 Jewish people, then later on some twelve to 15,000 Gentile people, and everywhere they went there were crowds, and they were probably talking to people and getting them to stand in lines in order to see Jesus, to be healed by Jesus. I mean, they had plenty of interaction with people. So they immediately knew what the people were saying about Jesus. <clears throat> some... Just like Herod Antipas, what did Antipas think about um, Jesus when he finally heard about him? He thought he was 
John the Baptist resurrected. So some people, just like Herod Antipas, were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. They were, in other words, the spirit of John the Baptist was in Jesus because it couldn't be John the Baptist resurrected totally because John the Baptist and Jesus had lived at the same time. John had baptized Jesus. I'm sure they were saying, well, the spirit of John is in Jesus. They probably identified Jesus with John because of their preaching style. Both of them were very bold in their preaching. They didn't pull back any punches when they were talking to the religious rulers, did they? Both of them dared to call them brood of vipers, you know, hypocrites, the whole thing. So they were very bold in their preaching. So people, now notice he didn't ask what the religious rulers thought of him, because he already knew and he didn't care. They were hypocrites. He didn't care about their opinion, but he wanted to know what the common people were saying. People thought highly of Jesus. We notice in their answers, they weren't very influenced at all by their religious rulers. They didn't say, well, he's just of Satan. They actually highly esteemed him to put him at a level with John the Baptist because they thought highly of John the Baptist. They did indeed know he was a prophet of God. So they put Jesus on their highest human pedestal by identifying him with one of their national heroes. But John never performed any miracles. You know that, don't you? had great preaching, but he never performed a single miracle. So others identified him with Elijah because Elijah, one of their greatest prophets, was a man who performed some very great miracles because of his prayers. They knew Jesus was a man of prayer, and they knew he could perform miracles, so others identified him with Elijah. Elijah, remember, through his prayer life, had shut up the heavens, and it didn't rain for years. And then, because he prayed again, the windows of heaven opened up, and rain came pouring down. What else did he call from heaven? Fire. He called fire down from heaven. So, you know, that's why probably they wanted a sign from heaven. In our, uh, was that our lesson last week when they asked for the sign from heaven? You know, show us that you're just as powerful as Elijah. Both John the Baptist and Elijah, you have to admit, were fiery denunciators of evil. They, they urged sinners to repent and renounce their wicked ways. The Jews knew that Elijah had been prophesied to come. Now, remember, Elijah didn't really die. He was taken up in a whirlwind and in a chariot of fire. But he was prophesied to come again in Malachi 4, 5, and some saw this prediction fulfilled in Jesus. They said, well, this is Elijah returned. They were really mixed up because (laughs) the spirit of Elijah was in who? John the Baptist. But at any rate, they're certainly not going along with their religious rulers. Uh, Still others said, and it's interesting because both John the Baptist and Elijah were not the Messiah, were they? Does anybody say that Jesus is the Messiah in this consensus? You know, what people were saying? Nobody said he was the Messiah. They're all saying, oh, he's the forerunner of the Messiah, but not the Messiah. Because John and Elijah are both forerunners of the Messiah. You know, Elijah will come again in the end times. And that's another story, but... Still others said that Jesus was much like a resurrected Jeremiah. And this was probably due to the tender-hearted compassion that they witnessed in Jesus and his broken-heartedness over the decay that he saw in their nation. Jeremiah was known as what kind of prophet? The weeping prophet. And this was somehow how the people were perceiving Jesus, who was indeed the man of sorrows, wasn't he? A man who was... uh, well acquainted with grief, a man who sighed deeply. 
in his uh, spirit over the consequences of sin among his beloved people. Did you know that there was a tradition based on the um, uninspired apocryphal books, one of them being Second Maccabees, there is a tradition still existing among some of the Jewish people today that Jeremiah is going to return again right before the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom. They say that Jeremiah was the one who, right before the Babylonian captivity, took the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense out of the temple, and um, he took it before it was destroyed, you know, by Nebuchadnezzar, and he hid those things somewhere on Mount Nebo to preserve them from uh, confiscation or destruction. So Jews, some Jews, well, at the time of Christ, many Jews, and to this day still some Jews, believe that before the Messiah returned to the earth to establish his kingdom, Jeremiah would be resurrected, he would return, and he would restore the ark and the altar of incense into their rightful place in the, in the new temple, in the restored temple, the temple that will be the millennial temple. So some said that he was Jeremiah uh, resurrected. Now, there were other people, the disciples said, who merely speculate. They knew Jesus was somebody great, but they weren't quite sure who, so they just said that he was one of the prophets risen again. Now, you can see that over in Luke 9, 19. I didn't read that, but, but uh, it, I thought it was interesting. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection at all. So it seems to me they didn't have much... Um, influence on the people because the people certainly believed in resurrection didn't they they thought he was john resurrected or elijah resurrected or one of the prophets resurrected so they sure didn't go along with the sadducees too much but again notice there is no mention of the people saying that he is the messiah so there's no unanimous opinion of christ in the world isn't that something we notice here what about if you went today and took a people poll about who do, who do people say Jesus is, Jesus Christ is? Do you think you'd get a un, unanimous opinion? Or would it be like this? There is no unanimous opinion of Christ out there in the world today. Most people would say that he was a great man. Most people would say that he was far above the average, but they would all still make him unless they're truly born-again Christian, they would still all make him a man of some kind, a great man. But you know what? A great man isn't a liar. And Jesus said that he was the Son of God, that he was the living bread that came down from heaven. So how could he be great if he was a liar or a lunatic? So you can't just say he's a good or a great man. He either is not because he lied or was out of his mind, or he truly is Lord. But you can't have it both ways. One truth is abundantly clear. We cannot make a true decision or the right choice about Jesus Christ by taking a people poll. You know, I'm not really interested in what the statistics show. Are you? When they tell us all these opinion polls about this and that, I don't really, nobody has ever yet asked me any of these things that they take a poll on. The only time I ever, I had a phone call about a month ago and they wanted me to, to answer all these questions about automobiles. And I flunked it so bad, she was laughing her head off by the end. I don't know one car from another. Seriously, I do not care at all about vehicles, as long as they get me to where I'm going and that they have a CD or a cassette player. 
It's all that's important to me. <laughs> uh, and they have to have a steering wheel. You know the new ones are going to come out with joysticks and no pedals? I won't be able to drive them. <laughs> oh, anyway, one thing is perfectly clear. We cannot get an honest opinion about Christ by taking a people poll. The confessions of unsaved people will always shortchange Jesus. Always. But then, the important thing is not what others say about him. What is the important thing for you, for me? The most important thing is what we individually confess about him. The decisions of the multitudes, the, decision, the decisions of your parents, the decisions of your church, the decisions of your nation, don't matter. They can never substitute for a person's individual, personal decision. And that is what the Lord Jesus now wanted from his men. He basically said to them, all right, you've told me what other people say about me, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter, who once again was the spokesman for the group, he was very quick to speak, wasn't he? Some people have to think things through and analyze, but not Peter. <laughs> he just spoke right up on behalf of the others. And he said, he, here, here was his conclusion of who Jesus was. He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's interesting in the Greek that there are four definite articles, the. It really literally reads in the Greek like this. You are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one four definite articles. And when Peter said that, Jesus responded by saying to him, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but who? My Father which is in heaven. That's in verse 17. In other words, this confession by Peter was the work of God. This was the work of God. This was the result of specific divine revelation. God's Spirit had 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 drawn Peter and the others. He was the spokesman on behalf of all of them, except for, we always know, except for Judas. The God Spirit had drawn them to the point where this truth of Jesus was embedded deeply in their hearts. It was actually God the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer, wasn't it? That his men would, his men would pass the test, and they did. Uh, they would know that he was not some mythological figment of their imagination, such as the Greek god Pan. Nor was he a liar who claimed to be God, such as Caesar, which is, of course, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were saying about Jesus, that he was a liar who claimed to be God, or that he was a lunatic, as, as we have in this world. Many uh, cult leaders are just outright lunatics, like we had Jim Jones and David Koresh, and I couldn't believe it. But in Newsweek, I still get these magazines that I never signed up for, but I keep getting them. In Newsweek, this week, there's this guy. How many of you have heard of him? Here's his name. Oh, it's a mouthful. His name is, uh, he's, he's Puerto Rican, but he has his ministry in uh, Doral, Florida. This man has a, a leading of some 100,000 followers. He, his name is uh, Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. But they call him de, de Jesus, you'd say in English, de Jesus. 
All right. He claimed, first of all, he claimed to be the resurrected or reincarnated, excuse me, the reincarnated Apostle Paul. Then two years ago, he declared himself to be Christ. Can you believe that people are following, 100,000 people are following with a growing movement in the Hispanic community? It's sad. But just last week, this is February 5th, Newsweek, just last week, he decided to, that he was the Antichrist. And he revealed a 666 tattooed on his forearm. And his explanation for why he declared himself the Antichrist is because he's really saying he is the second coming Christ. And he says he's, he's really the Antichrist because now that he's the Christ at his second coming, people are not to continue to worship Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the first Jesus. I don't know. You figure. It's really messed up. But <laughs> uh, Nor was Jesus some resurrected Old Testament prophet. He was and is the son of the living God. <clears throat> now, you know, a son is one in nature with his father. So Peter was stating that his belief that Jesus was, he was stating his belief that Jesus was one in nature with God his father. When he was saying, you know, that thou art the son of the God. In other words, not only did he say he was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, but he also said, you are deity. You are the son of God. Now, you know, Peter didn't have this really fully, fully, fully. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't get that really until after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So this was a giving of a divine gift from God. This was a revelation from God. The, uh, that the apostles went along with this at this point in time. They, they, they knew it, but they're still going to fluctuate. But they're, they're getting there, aren't they? They actually passed the exam with this answer. They passed it enough that Jesus went on to give them even greater revelation about his church. So, but it wasn't their flesh and blood reasoning. Because we're going to see in a couple of weeks that Jesus has to actually reprimand Peter, the same one who made this confession and say, get thee behind me, Satan. All right, so it wasn't his flesh and blood reasoning that gave this answer. This was a revelation from God. You know, the, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. This was from, from uh, God the Holy Spirit. So anyway, what made the, the, uh, this confession of Peter different from previous ones that had been made, not only by Peter, but some of the other men, like Nathaniel and um, all of them after, after the storm. What made this confession different? Well, for one thing, Jesus had never previously, before this, asked them for a confession. This time, he did. And he didn't ask at a time that would be, you know, the result of an emotional response from these men who had just witnessed a mighty miracle, like when he walked out to them on the, on the top of stormy waves. He asked them here at a time when it was becoming very obvious that the spiritual leadership of Israel was getting to the point of open hostility toward him. He asked them after they had had ample time to consider the evidence for and against his deity. He wanted the studied and the sincere statement, confession, of men who had been taught by his words, not merely the statement of men responding from emotions after seeing great signs and wonders. 
Now, another thing which made this confession different is that Jesus fully accepted it, and he built upon it to teach his men new truths. He knew that he could now take his men to new stages of deeper truth. He knew he could proceed in that eye-opening process. So for the first time, he spoke to them about the church that he was going to build. And let's look at that now in verses 18 to 20. It says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. All right, so here for the first time, Jesus indicates to his men his purpose to build a church. This is going to be something that was a mystery to all the old people of the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. It was, this is was something new, in, new and different. In his church, Christ would unite believing Jew and believing Gentile. It would be um, God's new temple. You know, in the Old Testament, there was the temple there in Jerusalem where God dwelt. Well, first of all, the tabernacle, then the temple. When Jesus came and walked upon earth for three and a half, well, for 33 years, where was the temple of God? Him. He was the temple of God. That's why he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. God dwelt in him. And now where is God's temple? It's in, it's in us. Those who make up his church. Know, know ye not that your body is the temple of God? All of us together make up the temple of God, where God resides, God the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for church is, you all know this Greek word, don't you? What is it? Ekklesia. Ekklesia, and it literally means a called-out assembly. The church of Christ consists of all those who are called out from what? The world. Yeah, we're all called out from the world. We're called out of the kingdom of darkness to be included in the spiritual body of Christ. He's the head of the church, and we are the body of the church. He alone is the head of the church. Now, oh, here's where it gets interesting, and here's where I get nervous. <laughs> These are some difficult verses here. The Lord's words to Peter, not really, but they've been, they've been, uh, yes. <laughs> the Lord's words to Peter that he was going to build his church upon this rock have caused endless discussions and some serious misinterpretations over the years, as you probably all know. Today it is claimed that Christ's statement to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, and 19, those two verses, 18 and 19, made Peter the supreme authoritative representative of Jesus Christ on earth. In other words, the Pope. The Peter was the first pope. That Peter is the rock upon which the one true church, Roman Catholicism claims to be the one true church, was built. Vatican II states this, quote, After Peter's confession of faith, Christ determined that on him, on Peter, he would build his church. To him, to Peter, 
Christ promised the keys of the kingdom of heaven. End of quote. So the, the uh, Pope's authority today and the Catholic religion over which the Pope resides stands on this assertion and this interpretation of these verses. But we ask ourselves, is this what the passage is all about? Is this all about Peter being the first pope and uh, saying that his word is infallible, which is basically the, their interpretation of verse 19, uh, that he is the rock upon which Jesus, upon whom Jesus Christ built his church, and that from Peter, the first pope, there is an unbroken succession of popes that will continue until the Lord's return. Is this what all of this is teaching? So to, what I want to do to begin this discussion is to consider, first of all, what the Lord's words here cannot mean, what they cannot mean, and I base this on other scripture because scripture cannot and does not contradict itself. That's one of our basic tenets of Bible interpretation is that Scripture never contradicts itself. So what can these verses not mean? Well, first of all, Peter is not the foundation rock upon which the church is erected um, because this would contradict with what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.11. Paul said, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ, not Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, the son of Jonas, Jesus Christ. Secondly, Peter was not even the first leader of the church. Did you know that? Yes, he was a natural leader, and whenever Jesus asked a question, he was the first one to speak up because he was a natural leader. He was a leader of the apostles, but he was not the first leader of the church. He was the first one to preach on the day of Pentecost, but the apostle who presided over the first church council was not Peter. The one who made the conclusive decision at the first church council was who? James. You can read about that in Acts 15, <clears throat> verses 13 to 19. James, after hearing and talking and discussion, he said, my sentence is so-and-so. James was the first leader of the church apostolic leader, if you want to get technical like that. In fact, the bishops of Rome were not even considered a pope until some 1,000 years after the day of Pentecost. Did you know that? There were bishops, ruling bishops in the church of Rome, but none of them were called pope until 1,000 years after Christ. And it's interesting that Peter's name does not even appear in the first list of the first 12 bishops of Rome. Now, don't you think if he was the first bishop of Rome that his name would be included, even included in the first 12 bishops of Rome? It's not, not only is Peter's name not first, it's not even included. A guy named Linus. Isn't that um, Linus and Peanut? Peanut? <laughs> A guy named Linus was the first bishop of Rome. This is interesting, too. Um, where do I have this? That not one of the early Catholic fathers, I hate to use that word because we're not to call any man father. There's another scripture that, you know, we shouldn't call any man father, so why do they call the 
Pope Papa. Pope means Papa. But none of the, not one of the early church fathers interpreted this rock to be Peter. None of them. Syrian, uh, and excuse me, Cyprian, Origen, Cyril, Hilary, Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine. None of them interpreted this rock to be Peter. They all interpreted when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, to be Peter's confession of faith. And his confession of who Christ is and Christ being the rock, which is interesting. Also, Peter may have been used by God for the salvation of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, but Peter was not the apostle who opened the kingdom of God to the Gentile world. That privilege was divinely given to another apostle. Who? Paul. Paul, Paul was the, gent- the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, and you can read that in Acts 9.15. Paul spoke of Peter, James, and John as pillars in the Christian church. That's in Galatians 2.9. But he also said in 2 Corinthians 12.11, this is Paul, he said, in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostle. So if, if Paul could make that statement, that means that if Peter had been the chief apostle, the supreme pontiff, Paul could not have made that God-inspired statement. Actually, at one time, Paul even rebuked Peter. How's that for infallibility for the first pope? Peter rebuked, uh, I mean, Paul rebuked Peter, Galatians 2.11. It really would make better sense if, if Catholicism had decided to make Paul the first pope, the first bishop of Rome, because at least he ministered to Gentiles and actually made it to Rome. Paul actually did make it to Rome. That's where he was killed, right? Martyred. But there is no biblical proof at all that Peter ever went even near Rome. We know that Peter went to Antioch. He went to Samaria. He went to Joppa. He went to Caesarea. He went to other places. But there's never any mention of Peter going to Rome. It'd be kind of hard to be the bishop of Rome if you never went to Rome. And the dates of his supposed reign as Bishop of Rome, which Catholicism says he reigned for 25 years as the first Bishop of Rome, those dates conflict with biblical data. I have that in your notes. I won't go into it here. Also, it's interesting to note that when Paul wrote his first letter to the Christians at Rome, the book of Romans, he sent greetings to 27 different people. He names, you know, greet this guy and this guy and this guy, but he never mentioned Peter. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? Isn't that interesting or unusual or freaky that if Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome and he mentioned 27 people in his greetings, but he never mentioned the, the pastor of the church, the first bishop of Rome, he never mentioned Peter. He never sent greetings to Peter because Peter wasn't there. That's why. Do you know that Paul wrote 100 chapters in our New Testament, and Peter only wrote eight. So don't you think they would have been better off if they decided Paul was the first pope? I think they would have been, but they would have been wrong with that, too, because there is no pope. shouldn't be. There is, but there shouldn't be. Peter was not only the apostle to whom the... um, He was not the only apostle to whom also the gift of binding and loosing. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but you can read about it in verse 19. He was not the only one who was given that particular privilege of binding and loosing. If you compare 
um, the Lord's words in verse 19 with what he says over in Matthew 18, 18. You'll see that he also gave all the apostles, not just Peter, but all the apostles, this privilege of binding and loosing. And guess what? He also gave it to the whole church. And then you can compare also with John 20, verses 22 to 23, um, that he breathed the, when he breathed the Holy Spirit unto all the apostles. He said, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. And again, I'll talk about that later, but it wasn't just a privilege for Peter. It was for all the apostles and basically for all the church. All right, then Peter himself stated in his own writings, Peter stated that he was merely an elder among elders in the church. In his own writing, Peter very seriously warns his fellow elders to guard against any feelings of supremacy over their flocks. That's interesting if he was the first pope. And that's in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. That the Lord did not build his church upon the supremacy of Peter and all his supposed successors was, was clearly demonstrated after this confession that Peter made here. Remember when the disciples asked the Lord who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if it had been Peter, don't you think the Lord would have settled the matter right then and there? When they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus would have said, well, it's Peter. Don't you remember? I said, upon Peter, I would build my church. Actually, if the disciples had understood the Lord's words the way Catholicism understands, they wouldn't even have asked that question because they would have already understood that Jesus picked Peter to be the, the supreme one, the greatest. But how did the Lord respond to that question when they asked who's the greatest? very interesting. He took a small child. I always picture them putting the child in his lap, and he said, whosoever humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, on another occasion, I always think this is funny, but John and James sent their mother, Salome, who was actually Jesus's aunt, to Jesus to request the seats of honor on his right and on his left hand when he came into his kingdom. Now, there again, if they had understood that Peter was the supreme one among them, they would have known not to send their mother to ask this question. They would have known that, G that Peter already got the supreme seat on the Lord's right and intended nobody to be on the left. But, and then again, when Jesus answered the mother, he didn't, say, he didn't make it clear, did he, by saying, well, no, I, I can't do that because I've already given the seat of honor to Peter. The fact that he never even suggested any such thing indicates that the rock upon which he would build his church was not Peter. Well, then, if the rock is not Peter, who or what is it? What did the Lord mean when he said to Peter, after Peter's great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? What did P Jesus mean when he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church? And by the way, if he had meant Peter, why in the world wouldn't he have made it so clear by saying... Uh, thou art Peter, and upon thee I will build my church. He could have settled it forever by saying that, right? But he didn't say that because he wasn't going to build his church on Peter. Well, the word Peter in Greek is Petros, meaning a part of a rock. In other words, a stone. Cephas is Aramaic for the same thing, a stone. 
When the Lord stated that he was going to build his church upon this rock, a different Greek word is used by Matthew, and that word is Petra, which refers to a rock, a large, mountainous, boulder type of rock, such as the Lord used when he spoke about building our houses upon a rock. So when the floods come and the winds blow, we won't, our house won't sink, like a house does in, that's built on sand of which the Lord spoke here was Peter's confession regarding Christ, his person, as both the promised Messiah and the Son of God, in other words, deity. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that God's household is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the New Testament prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of the church is the revelation of Christ, the the doctrine, the teaching of Christ given initially through who? The apostles and the prophets. The Lord builds his church on the truth of himself. The apostles were endowed with this truth in a unique way by their preaching of that truth. They were laying the foundation of his church in a unique way because they were the first ones privileged to speak of Christ to the world, that he is the rock, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So the foundation is Christ, the rock, and then they preached, you know, they laid the foundation on top of that by teaching of him. He's the center of everything. Christ is the center of everything. It wasn't Peter who was being declared as so supreme that he was the foundation for the entire church. It was the truth that he spoke with his mouth that was supremely important and would serve as the foundation for, the, for Christ's church. The very obvious truth of the rock is that, of course, it speaks of, of who? Christ himself. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God, deity, is always referred to. There, I've got scripture verses in your books. God is always, many times, spoken of or pictured as a rock. That rock is Christ. You know, even when Moses smote the rock, it was a picture of Christ. Jesus Christ is that rock. He is the head of the church. It would be on the rock of Christ's messianic character and his divine nature that the church would be built. And the Lord is still building his church. You know, he's the chief stone, the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. It was built upon by the apostles and the, and the, um, the prophets because they preached Christ. And the church is continuing to be built by all of us as living stones. We're building up the church. We're living stones like Peter. And we build up the church, again, how? By proclaiming who? Christ. We proclaim Christ. And it's Peter who actually wrote about us being living stones in his epistle, 1 Peter. It's not faithful believers such as Peter who build Christ's church. I maybe had said that when I was just talking, and I shouldn't have said that we're building the church. We're not the ones who build the church. It is Christ who builds his church through faithful believers. And that's why he said upon this rock, I will build my church. And then he went on to talk about the indestructibility of this church that he would build by saying that even the very gates of hell or Hades, the Greek word is Sheol, which is Hades, 
will not prevail against it. That's in um, the latter part of verse 18. The gates of Hades has oftentimes been interpreted to refer to the power of Satan and his evil forces attacking the church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the picture you get? You know, the gates of hell, Satan and all his evil forces will not even be able to prevail, overpower the church of Jesus Christ. But really, you know, if you think about it, does Satan go around attacking with gates? Are, is, are gates uh, an instrument of warfare? <laughs> Would you send out soldiers with gates <laughs> to, um, to a, you know, as, this is a strange way to refer to an attacking army, isn't it? This has really been misinterpreted. The purpose of gates is not to conquer. You don't send your soldiers out with gates. You send them out with swords, but not with gates. The purpose of gates is either one of two things, to protect those who are behind the gates or to protect them from being captured or to keep those behind the gates from getting out, such as escaping from a prison. Hades, as I said, is the, well, it's not the Greek word, it's the Hebrew word uh, for Sheol. Remember what Sheol is? Sheol was the abode of the dead. Before the day of Pentecost, all believers and unbelievers went to a place called Sheol, or Hades. Hades was a sort of a temporary abode for the dead. It's, it was never... Hell is permanent. Hades was temporary. The church, all unbelievers, are still in Hades. They will not go to hell until after the great white throne judgment. And then they will be cast into hell, the lake of fire forever and ever. But Hades was a two-compartment place, Sheol. There was one section that was called paradise, and the other section which was basically what you think of as Hades, the, the bad part for the unbelievers. Um, but there, there's definitely this difference. Hades was a temporary abode for the dead. Hell is permanent. Nobody is in hell yet. Nobody's in hell yet. Now, those who were in Hades, um, the paradise, Abraham's bosom is another reference to it, were believers. Even when Jesus was dying, he said to the dying thief, Today thou shalt be with me where? In paradise. That dying thief, when he died, his soul did not go to heaven. It first went into the, this good compartment of Hades. What he is saying, I believe here, is that you, it, whether you interpret it the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, none of them, neither of them, would be able to keep imprisoned those who have put their faith in Christ, those who confess, like Peter, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Hades couldn't prevail against those believers because after Jesus died, what did he do? He went down to that compartment and he set them free. He took them all with him when he took captivity captive. He went, took them with him when he entered into heaven. So even the gates of hell, Hades couldn't prevail against them. Now, after the day of Pentecost, the day this church began, 
all believers go where? Do we have to go to Hades first for a while, or paradise first? No, we go absent from the body, present with the Lord. And hell will never prevail over any of us either. So neither the gates of Hades or hell will ever prevail against those who are living stones, those who, like Peter, confess Christ. Do you get it? So it's not like the, the Satan attacking against the church. It's that death has no uh, uh, victory over us, the church. We make up the church if you're truly a born-again believer. I hope I explained that enough so that you're all giving me puzzled looks, but maybe it's a little clearer in the notes. All right, I want to quick try to finish on time, so let's look at family keys. This is a verse 19 when he says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. A key symbolizes authority. So in this verse, Jesus talked of the authority of his church. He was addressing, again here, he's addressing Peter as the representative of the twelve, and he is telling all of them that they would possess the keys of the kingdom so that they would be able to open doors. What do you do with keys? You open doors. Now, Please understand that these keys don't refer to heaven. This is where that picture comes, where people always talk about Peter standing at the gate of heaven, you know, with keys in his hand, and he's the one who either lets a person in or doesn't. That is the wrong interpretation of this passage here. What Peter and the other apostles were being told is that they would have the privilege of opening the keys to the kingdom, or we could say the door of faith so, faith so that others could enter into the kingdom. You know, they were given the special privilege of opening the door of faith to Jews on the day of Pentecost, and again to Samaritans in Acts 8.14, and to Gentiles in, the, in Palestine in Acts 10. Paul, we know, was that apostle who had uh, the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Gentiles outside of the promised land. You know, you and I even have the keys to the kingdom. You know what the key really is? It's the word of God. It's, 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 again, going back to Peter's confession. Whosoever believeth on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We have the keys to the kingdom when we preach to people or teach people, talk to people, give them the gospel message. We have the keys to the kingdom. If they'll hear our message and respond, the door is open for them. That's all it's referring to there. Authority was being conferred on Peter and the other apostles. If you read over in Matthew 18, it was to all of them to administer in Christ's name to proclaim his truth, to declare salvation to people, and then to assure those who believed um, that they were indeed recipients of eternal life. And that's what is meant when he talks about binding and loosing. That's, it's kind of confusing, but, you know, we have that same... It's not something special that only a priest or a pope can do. You know, say your sins are forgiven or I bind you, or I loose you. Or all it means is if, like, if somebody comes to me based on the authority of God's word, and they say that they have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I can say, well, based upon your confession, then you are a member of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I can't really see their heart, but based upon God's word, I could say that. I could say a lot of things based upon God's word. I could say that adultery is a sin. I can say that homosexuality is a sin. 
I could say that God hates divorce, you know, and that it is always his will that every couple stay together. That is his perfect will. I, there's a lot of things that we can say based upon the truth of God's word. And that's essentially all this is saying. Christians today have authority to declare what is acceptable to God or forbidden by God based upon what he says in his word. And on the basis of his word, we can recognize and proclaim what God has already determined in heaven to be right or wrong. See, the church doesn't accomplish man's will in heaven. It obeys God's will on earth. Well, and all that means is when believers are in agreement with God, he's in agreement with them. The last part is the forbidden word in verse 20. Very quickly, after Jesus um, said all these things, he's told his men not to tell this truth about him being the Son of God, the Christ, with other people at this point in time. And the reason for this is because he had already said that the Jews would not get another sign, would they, until the sign of Jonas. And also, there's several reasons, I think. Uh, if they had gone around saying that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, they would be casting their pearls before swine because the people weren't ready to accept this yet. Remember, nobody said that he was even the Christ. They said he was all these other people resurrected, but not the Christ. Furthermore, the apostles did not yet know that the power of the gospel, the real keys to the kingdom, lay in the power of the cross. They didn't know that yet. This was before the cross, and they still needed further training. Now, in our lesson next week, he's actually going to talk about his upcoming dying. But all of, if they had gone around at this point in time and told everybody their conclusion, there would have been a premature uprising that would cause just bring danger to the cause. So, now, for the very first time, the apostles heard what the Lord intended to do. He intended to build a body of believers called the church, which was going to be built upon a foundation of rock. Peter? No, Christ himself. And this was going to be invincible against death, sin and death. The gates of Hades and hell could not keep imprisoned those who would make up Christ's church and were identified with him and his authority in heaven. So for the first time, he told his men that they were going to be the administrators in this new form of the kingdom, which would be composed of all those who, with faith like Peter, acknowledge our confidence in who Jesus Christ is. So who do ye say that he, the Son of Man, is? I pray and I hope that you agree with Peter. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that because Christ lives, we can live also. We need not fear hell. We need not even fear going temporarily into a place called Sheol. Even though it was paradise and there was no suffering there, we can be absent from the body and immediately present with you. Thank you that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. He is the rock upon whom we can build our lives and know that they are secure from whatever storms may hit because ultimately we have, present tense, if we have accepted you, we have eternal life. And for this there is no greater no greater praise we can give to you than to, than to say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. This is the ultimate thank you that we have a sure hope 
a sure foundation reserved for us in heaven because of him. Now, Lord, I just pray that each woman would live for him this next week and that you would bring us all back together next week to again look at what you have to teach us through your word. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed, precious name. Amen.